0: i
1: back to another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed. And we are bringing you some baseball in the middle of December.
0: Yes, we are a bi-weekly baseball history podcast. Bi-weekly. That's right. Uh, yeah,
1: thank you for, for tuning in. You can find us on uh, the Instagram at doing.baseball. And lots Twitter. Of, lots of great content on Instagram right now.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I started back up again. I took a little while off there, maybe four or five months where I got a little bit lazy with the Instagram, but I'm back. Yeah. Posting
1: on social media. It's uh it's, it's, it seems easy, but that's why people are employed to do it. So that's right. Uh, yeah. When you have another job or a couple other jobs, it's a, uh, it's a little a uh, little difficult, but we've been consistent a little bit there. So check us out on the Instagram. Give us a follow uh, on Twitter at Doing Baseball. Uh, follow us there. You get updates on all the new podcasts whenever they're coming out, and sometimes some fun other content and stuff too. And you can see our personal Twitter accounts and everything.
0: Yeah, we like to share stuff that we think is interesting that you would like to check out. So oh yeah, you know oh yeah. There's a there's there's not. We don't have too many of our takes on the Doing Baseball. Uh, Twitter. I would say it's more. It's more just what we would like to share with you. So yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, give us a follow there. Say so that way you'll never ever miss an episode. Uh, we come to you every other Wednesday. Uh, Oops. This Wednesday. Uh, winter meetings going on.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: nothing really to say. It's just no, boring. No, there's no news. Boring.
0: Everything's boring because there's nothing going on.
1: You're probably listening to us because you just want to listen about baseball and yep. there's there's nothing. I don't understand why it's called the winter meetings if they're not physically there. Like it's just a regular week for everybody. Yeah, it's
0: just Zoom meetings. Yeah, it? exactly. The Zoom but meetings they'd be doing that already, yeah. so it's just. It is winter, though. Yeah. Well, sure.
1: It's a winter. Winter everyone's at home meeting with each other yeah well
0: okay so anyway okay we are coming to you this week from the newly fortified studio in Alliston because I got robbed last week yeah so that sucks so we got some new uh, we got a new computer that we're working on here. Yeah, so the uh, old laptop got stolen. It uh, got broken into. But yeah, uh,
1: whoever robbed Ed's house, you, you suck. Yeah, you suck. Good luck getting into that laptop that, that you I took.
0: locked from all my other devices. Exactly. So fuck you. Yeah,
1: fuck yourselves. <laughs> uh, sad news out of the baseball world. Uh, Dick Allen passed away yesterday. Uh, yeah, it's too bad. Yes, yeah, so it well, it'll was... be two days ago. And, yeah, come Wednesday. Right, right. Um, right, right. Yeah. But that—that's some tragic news. Uh, he was the sixth best hitter for OPS plus since the 19 since 1900 uh which is really I think oh, I believe actually the the stat is for right-handed hitters okay uh, but let's still let, let's see who he compares to in uh in uh, OPS plus since 1900 well there's Hank Greenberg just ahead of him mm-hmm. at Hankus Pankus at 158 you can check out our uh, episode 25 episode 25 on Hank Greenberg uh, Dick Allen comes in 6th with an OPS plus of 156 tied with the big hurt Frank Thomas wow. uh, and more impressively oh and tied with Willie Mays and even more impressively holy shit one point ahead of Hank Aaron Joe DiMaggio as well so and not in the Hall of Fame and not in the Hall of Fame yet he right. damn well should be it'll happen soon it'll, I'm hoping yeah but god damn it's sad that uh, he's not around to see it so uh
0: so now the committee is Dick Allen and Dale Murphy in the Hall of Fame there we go okay
1: that's it we'll be yeah. putting all the money we make off this podcast into lobbying those <laughs> who need to hear it yeah Dick Allen
0: and Dale Murphy and
1: Dale Murphy for the Hall of Fame <laughs> uh Edzie, you're going back to back.
0: Yeah. Love it. I'm excited to sit I back and hear this one. I don't really have too much to say about it before I get into it, so I guess I'll just get into it.
1: All right, let's go. Take away.
0: Okay, Sean. If you ever have plans to commit a crime, a heinous crime. Is this just about
1: your house getting robbed?
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. This is maybe inspired by that. Maybe that's something in the back of my mind that inspires this <laughs> Uh in the state of Indiana, do not by any means use a state of deteriorating mental health as your defense. At very least, don't expect that proving that to be the case will save you from paying a debt to paying a debt to society. Do you know why? Cuz
1: Indiana has antiquated laws.
0: Well, because it's after it's post 1978, and a lot of things have happened since then, both in the courtroom and on the ball field. Uh huh. The end of the 70s in Indiana was a violent time. Really? It, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Yeah, Gary, Indiana. Oh
1: yeah, we talked about Gary, yeah. Indiana. Yeah. A little Charles bit. Finley. Yeah. 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 So, and
0: oddly, this this fellow that I'm talking about had pretty much the exact same. Start to life as Charles Finley, but very different end. Um, Gary, Indiana had one of the highest crime rates per capita in the United States and even became America's murder capital in the 90s. Wow. Yeah. Per capita. Yeah, yeah, per capita. Um, The specific changes that I'm going to focus on in the story are those made to the insanity pleas in the late 70s. And uh, how those changes, if implemented only a few years earlier, would have kept a vengeful killer behind bars. All right. And this yep. has
1: to do with baseball. I was going to say, <laughs> how is this baseball related, you ask? Yes.
0: It's a long story. All right, let's go. <laughs> okay, so Ban Johnson and the boys of the American League began to compete with the now well-established National League in 1901. Yep. The league had eight teams, and one of them was in Washington, D.C., First as the Senators from 1901 to 1904, then as the Nationals from 1905 to 1955, and then again as the Senators from 1956 to 1960. Through the first decade of existence, the Senators were basement dwellers in the American League. Fortunes began to improve, however, when the big star throughout the Senators' history, big train Walter Johnson, turned up on the scene in 1907. Clark Griffith joined the team in 1912 and mortgaged nearly all of his assets to purchase a 10% ownership stake in the Senators, a club which had never finished better than 6th. Griffith immediately released and traded many of the team's veterans, and most sports writers predicted a last-place finish in the league's 2nd division for the Sens yet again. But thanks to a 17-game winning streak and 33 victories from Johnson, Washington posted a second-place finish, its best season in history. Quote, Every baseball fan knows the parody about Washington. First in war, first in peace, and last in the American League. (laughs) Griffiths said, Quote, But I had enough confidence in myself to think that I could pull out that club, rebuild it, and make it a winner, and therefore a big moneymaker. Griffith managed the Senators to five first-place division finishes in nine seasons before taking a second mortgage on his Montana ranch in order to buy a majority share of the team. By 1920, Griffith had moved upstairs to the owner's box, ending a 20-year managerial career. He's going
1: all in. Yeah, so he's 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 off off the field and under the office.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, the team had a period of prolonged success in the 20s and 30s, led by Johnson, as well as Bucky Harris, Goose Gosselin, Sam Rice, Heine Mnuch, and Joe Cronin. In 1924, the Senators won their first American League pennant and capped the season off with a World Series victory against John McGraw's New York Giants in seven games. And it ended in the most dramatic fashion. Did it? Yes. This is pretty crazy. In the deciding seventh game, the Senators were trailing the Giants 3-1 to one in the eighth inning when Bucky Harris hit a routine ground ball to third, which hit a pebble and took a bad hop over Giants third baseman Freddie Lindstrom.
1: Oh my God, I have heard of this. All right, keep going. Okay. okay.
0: <laughs> Two runners scored on the play, yeah. tying the score at three. An aging Walter Johnson then came in to pitch the ninth inning and held the Giants scoreless into extra innings. In the bottom of the 12th inning, with Ruel at bat, he hit a high foul ball directly over home plate. The Giants catcher Hank Gowdy dropped his protective mask to field the ball, but failing to toss the mask aside, stumbled over it and dropped the ball, thus giving Ruel another chance to bat. On the next pitch, Ruel hit a double and proceeded to score the winning run when Earl McNeely hit a ground ball that took another bad hop over Lindstrom's head. Goddamn. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. The Senators would go back to the Fall Classic again in 1925, but fell to the Pittsburgh Pittsburgh Pirates in another seven-game series. The next three decades or more were greatly mediocre for the Washington squad. They had some periods of relative success, appearing in the World Series again in 1933, which they lost to the vengeful Giants in five games. But for the most part, the glory days of the Senators were over. They competed for the pennant only briefly during World War II, and their dismal results were immortalized in the musical and film Damn Yankees. After the death of owner Clark Griffith in 1955, his nephew and adopted son Calvin took over the team's presidency. He sold Griffith Stadium to the city of Washington and leased it back, leading to speculation that the team was planning to move. After an early flirtation with San Francisco, Griffith began a courting process with Minneapolis St. Paul by the early days of 1957. Mm-hmm. The American League opposed the move at first, but in 1960, a deal was reached. The senators would move, and would be replaced with an expansion senators team for
1: 1961. Yes, I have it's, read about it. It's
0: this. just like weird that they like moved. They allowed him to move, but were just. I mean, I guess I don't know. Like well, Griffith, Griffith wanted was the one who wanted to move, but I guess the league was like it's still a viable market in well, Washington. Here's the thing:
1: is 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 there's there there's even more. If it could be an episode one day, is that that. The, where they wanted the new stadium apparently didn't fit with the uh, owner's, uh, I don't know, mentality? In it's, Washington? It was in a black part of town. And oh, okay. They, they didn't like that. That's brutal. Yeah. So that that's uh, I I don't actually. You know what? That might be the second time that they uh, moved when the expansion team moved. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere one of the one of the expansion teams that was part. Yeah, of because the, the new
0: expansion that... team eventually became the Rangers. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So
1: I'm pretty sure it was this one though, that they they so they go to they they're, they're looking at Minnesota.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So, they, like I say, they opposed the move at first, but in 1960, a deal was reached. Yeah. The Senators would move and would be replaced with an expansion center team from 1961. Thus, the old Senators became the Minnesota Twins. Success came quickly in Minnesota. Harmon Killebrew and Bob Allison, who had already been stars in Washington, were joined by, were joined by Tony Oliva and Zoilo Versailles, and later second baseman Rod Carew and pitchers Jim Catt and Jim Perry winning the American League pennant in 1965. But they lost to Sandy Koufax and the Dodgers in another seven-game series. In 1969, the Twinkies won the first AL West division, but lost in the ALCS three straight to the Baltimore Orioles. And then again in 1970 in the exact same fashion. The Twins just couldn't seem to get over the hump, but they believed that help was on the way. The help was prospect was prospect Lyman Bostock. Lyman Bostock. Lyman Bostock. All right. Never heard of him? No. Okay. November 22nd, 1950, Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr. was born in Birmingham, Alabama. I love that it's a junior too. Then. Yeah. <laughs> sign- Lyman? How do you spell Lyman? Just I'm curious. L y m a n. Okay. All right. I had a different in my head. Yeah. Lyman <laughs> Wesley Bostock. All right. Junior. Was born in Birmingham, Alabama, the son of Annie Pearl, known as Pearl, and Lyman Sr. Lyman Jr. was raised by his mother and grandmother as his parents had separated before his birth. Lyman's father was a gifted first baseman for the Birmingham Black Barons and the Chicago American Giants of the Negro Leagues. Skilled with both the glove and the bat, the elder Bostock passed his talent on to his son through genes, if not tutelage. Lyman Jr. once told the New York Times reporter Dave Anderson that his father may have taught Willie Mays how to play, but he hadn't done the same for his own son.
1: So he's right. bitter. A
0: little, a little yeah. bit of resentment there. Yeah. And he he did once say that he felt abandoned by his father. So well, it sounds like I mean, well, I don't I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but, I mean, you, know you don't really a, know
1: the story there. Well, but. I mean, if you're a if you're a professional baseball player you know you're spending at least six months away you're at least occupied
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, i don't even think it has anything to do with that it's no, just through just, the yeah, separation yeah, it's yeah the i guess that, that, that makes yeah.
1: sense now he's not even a part of his life
0: yeah. yeah so um many of bostock's relatives began to move out of birmingham starting in 1947 some to the steel mills of gary indiana mm-hmm. and others to california pearl relocated with her son to gary in 1954 At one time, Gary had been a thriving steel mill city. The steel industry brought hope and prosperity to the community. Broadway was known as a commercial center for the region. Department stores and architecturally significant movie houses were built in the downtown area and the Glen Park neighborhood. However, Gary entered a period of steep decline beginning in the mid to late 50s. With opportunities dwindling in Gary, Annie chose to relocate again in 1958 to Los Angeles. With only $7 in her pocket, finding work as a technician at a Los Angeles area hospital. She spent 20 years there as an employee. So she's making her way. Yeah. They're making their way out west. Uh, times remained tough for the Bostocks. Money was tight. Young Lyman's baseball glove was stolen. His mother didn't have the cash to buy him a new one, so he had accepted a hand me down from one of his mother's co workers. Quote, when I was eight years old, my mother brought me, bought me my first glove, Bostock recalled, but someone stole it the next day. My mother wasn't about to buy me another one, but a friend of hers at work gave her a replacement. The problem was that the glove was left-handed and Lyman was right-handed. Oh dear. Since it was the only glove I had, I had to use it. It was the only way I could catch the ball. It became a habit and I still have it that's amazing yeah he's referring to how he learned to catch the ball in basket style
1: oh uh, yeah. yeah so I, look I don't want to I
0: don't want to 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 Sean's coaching's coming in here no
1: no oh. I'm I'm just talking about the fact that, that this 8 year old maintained that he got something one day and then it was stolen the next and yeah. like I I don't want to say I, May he lost was. it yeah Maybe it was. He lost it. Maybe it was. <laughs> I know eight-year-olds, yeah. <laughs> and they lie.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: so, either way, he's got.
0: A, so oh, he's le- got another. Yeah, he's got another glove. Yeah. So, uh, Bostock frequently caught fly balls this way for the rest of his career.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: Lyman was an all-star, all Southern League first baseman as a senior in high school, and was recruited to play at Valley State College by Coach Bob Hyger it was there that he met Euveen Brooks, who would become his wife. Bostock did not play baseball during his first two years of college, choosing instead to be call, become involved in student activism and protest unfair treatment of African Americans. Good for him. Yeah.
1: That's awesome.
0: Yep. In 1970, he was arrested and thrown in jail for three weeks because of a student protest he was involved in. Probably bullshit. Probably. Yeah. Despite the arrest, Lyman was chosen by the Cardinals in the 1970 amateur draft. He declined the offer and stayed in college and played two more years baseball for Coach Higard and the Matadors. He earned second team California Collegiate Athletic Association All-Star honors in 1971 with a batting average of .344 and captured first team all-conference honors in 1972. Even though he was rather successful at the collegiate level, Bostock, a left-handed hitter who threw right-handed, fell to the 26th round of the 1972 draft when he was selected by the Twins. Bostock's explanation for the late selection, quote, They heard I had a bad attitude. They were wrong. They were
1: wrong. It's just like, basically what he's saying is, they heard I was a person arrested. that, that, that yeah. was actively involved in trying to make the black community better. They got upset. Yes. Um. That That's quite a path, right? Like, I mean, he gets recruited, but then goes and doesn't play, and yeah. instead is involved in activism, gets arrested, whatever, eventually ends up still being there and playing, mm-hmm. gets after he got drafted, but turned it down. It's yeah. just... Yeah. That's a story right there. That's amazing.
0: Yep. And he he sticks with this integrity throughout. He sounds like a man of great integrity. Yes, he is. Um, Okay, so uh, Bostock rose through the ranks of the Twins minor league system over the next few seasons, making stops in Charlotte, Orlando, and Tacoma in 1972, 3, and 4, respectively. At the start of the 1975 season, Twins had plans to give their young prospect a chance to earn a major league job. And he excelled at the opportunity batting 342 for the spring and drawing comparisons to teammate and future Hall of Famer Rod Carew. Bostock finished the rookie campaign, 282 average, 332 on base, and 369 at bats. As he was hampered by injuries, he needed an ankle surgery to remove bone chips at one point. That was his second injury of the season after breaking a finger in spring training, which caused him to miss most of March. And then he had a thumb injury towards the end of 1975 as well. In 1976, Bostock hit 323 with an on base percentage of 364 and an OPS of 794, despite nagging injuries, including a pulled hamstring. He was fourth best in the AL batting race behind George Brett, Hal McRae, and teammate Rod Carew. He struck out only 37 times in 474 at-bats. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. Twins beat reporter Bob Fowler surmised that it appeared, quote, the Twins will have an excellent center fielder for the next decade. Perhaps Bostock was, as he claimed to be, born to play baseball. But Lyman truly broke out in 1977, and it was often said that he was, quote, rapidly emerging as one of the best hitters around. Bostock's 336 batting average was second only to Carew's 388. May 25th that year, he tied a major league record for putouts in a nine inning game by a center fielder with 12. That's pretty. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's the 12 almost out of 27 outs? outs? Games, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. In the second, and that was in the second game of a doubleheader, which in turn set an AL record for putouts in a doubleheader with 17. Wow! So he had five in the other game. Five in the first. Yeah. yeah. The Twins set a franchise rec- franchise record for most runs scored in a season. Bostock undoubtedly had become a star and was the most sought-after player in the free agent market between 1977 and 1978. When Lyman entered the now since abandoned free agent draft of 1978, a process which allowed a free agent player to negotiate with up to 13 clubs, I didn't know about this. You know? No, I didn't. Yeah, I,
1: I guess. I love the way that they did that. They're like, "You're a free agent, but, but you just can't be a free agent for everyone."
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess. Yeah. There's like a. It was a draft. You the teams went through the draft of free agent players and would be like, "We pick this guy. We pick this guy." So he so got, a guy could be picked up
1: to thirteen times. Yes, and those were the teams that Had he could
0: be. negotiate. Yes, yeah. Wow, he was chosen by the maximum number of teams and by eight in the first round. So I guess I don't even know how that works. That'd be something to look into. Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um,
1: so there's there's around twenty four teams at this point. Or so. Probably something yeah, like that. Something yeah, something like that. Somewhere in that area. Um, yeah. So, but that that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Eight times in the first round.
0: Yeah. Bostock was eager, like many Twins players, to leave the services of notoriously stingy owner Calvin Griffith. Although he was not a fat contract seeker, Lyman did know what it was like to grow up poor, crave the financial security of a lucrative contract, and as many believed, deserved it, having played well beyond the worth of his previous previous $20,000 deal. He could be just as happy with peanut butter and jelly as he would be with oysters and caviar, Teammates overspent on luxury homes, boats, and fancy cars. Lyman and his wife, Yuvine, had a modest one-bedroom apartment. They owned his and hers Sob's, their one semi-indulgence at $11,000 each. Quote, "'I don't fly airplanes, and I don't own a yacht,' he told People magazine. "'Materialistic values, some people have a need for that in life. "'Some people have always dreamed of owning a boat. "'I enjoy riding a boat.'" Some people want fancy cars. The way I look at it, a car can do two things. It can take you and bring you.
1: (laughs) He he seems sensible. Yeah. I'd like to think that would be me if I was uh, a millionaire or something Mm -hmm. like that. But uh, anyway, he's not flashy. No. He's a man of
0: principles. This is great. Right. Bostock's agent, Abdul Jalil Al-Hakim, told the Sporting News, quote, We just plan to sit back, rub our hands, and wait for the money to fall into them. Lyman likely cringed. He wasn't after the most lucrative contract, just the happiest lifestyle. Quote, Lyman's a different kind of guy. Back then, he wanted to be comfortable. I remember one conversation we had early on. I sat him down and said, this is the money you're making now. So what would you do if you made 400000 How about 500000 How about 750000 The more money I mentioned, the less comfortable he became. At the end of the conversation, I laughed and said, Lyman, shut up, sit down, and let me handle things, because you'd sign for one dollar just to play. (laughs) So the agent's... The agent's, the agent's looking to cash in. He's like, let me, let me, let me do this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You don't like money. I like money. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think you get it. Money is... <laughs> it's, uh, it's There's like, money to be had. You're going to be making a lot of this money. I only just get a little. So uh, yeah. let's make a lot. Yeah. So I so get I a get little more. bit more. So
0: what my little is actually a, a lot. we <laughs> <Hey, real>. go. <laughs> <laughs> Although the twins ultimately offered Bostock a sum of money that he found adequate, the way they handled the negotiations had upset Bostock. Quote, That was way more than enough money, he said, referring to the six-year, $2 million contract the Twins eventually offered. Quote, if they had offered me that at the beginning of the season, I'd have signed. But by the end, I just didn't want to stay there. I'd be defeating the purpose of what Kurt Flood has done for the players. He wanted everybody to be able to enjoy the beauty and freedom of the game stock's disdain for the penny-pinching Griffith was clear. "Quote, if it wasn't for the owner, Minnesota would be a great place to play." So, like I say, the integrity, you know, he recognizes like the sacrifice that Flood made yeah. for everybody and he's like, "No, I got to explore free agency and see I got to make these these fuckers compete for me, you know?" Exactly. Like, and it's not about the money. It's yeah. about it's about other people. It's the principle. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Setting an example, I'm good, so I need to set the bar, you know? Yes, yes. Um, Reggie Jackson and George Steinbrenner made collaborative efforts to get Bostock in Yankee pinstripes. Carlos Jones, one of the ballplayers' closest friends, vividly recalls the day when he and Lyman were outside Bostock's apartment complex, a limousine pulled up, and a man in sunglasses and a dark suit stepped out. I'm with the New York Yankees, he said. And I'm going to hand you this check for $200,000. It doesn't matter whether you sign with us or not. It's just in good faith. When what? the man asks... What's that?
1: <laughs> keep going. Yeah. Like, I'm just... What?
0: Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. just, here's 200 grand. Sign with us. But you don't have to sign with us. But here's 200 what's, grand. You what's can What's the have
1: word it. I'm looking for? Because that, that can't be legal. <laughs> yeah, Bribe? Uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, there's a more technical word that I use in my day-to-day life as a working, it's just not, not... Fraud? uh, Not fraud, no, no, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, paying somebody to be interested in your, uh, in your product, essentially. But, anyways, so... Anyways,
0: yes. Uh, yes, it doesn't matter what you sound those. it's just in good faith. When the man asked whether Bostock had an agent, he pointed towards Jones. (laughs) Yeah. who was really a data systems supervisor with the LA County. That night, the Yankees sent a limo to Jones's house and treated him and his wife to a fancy dinner. Quote, of course Lyman didn't cash the check, Jones says. He never would do something to compromise who he was. My God.
1: An inducement was the word I was looking inducement. for. Inducement. Yes. Yes. Okay. But he didn't take it. He didn't take
0: the $200,000 inducement. Is,
1: but he got his friend a nice dinner.
0: Yeah. That's...
1: <laughs> yeah. He was like, yeah, that's my agent. <laughs> yeah. just uh, You wine and dine him. Don't yeah, worry about yeah, it. We'll, we'll, yeah. Deal with him. That's my guy. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: So uh, the Bronx bonger, Bombers... Bronx Bongers. The Bronx Bombers reportedly offered Bostock a quarter of a million dollars more and San Diego Padres owner Ray Kroc offered him McDonald's franchises in addition to a hefty contract. Here, that might thing. have been a good... There's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> you come play for us,
1: you know. You get paid well, but you get a restaurant yeah, You get a couple of burger joints. <laughs> every year. 30 home runs, that's two burger joints. <laughs>
0: 40 home runs. Now we're yeah. talking three. We're working on this thing. They're called McNuggets. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, but Bostock signed a deal with the California Angels that would reportedly pay him $2.3 million over five years. All right, so he did get that little bit more money. Yep. And won the last year. Yeah. And he's moving to Cali. Or That's back right. to Cali. That's right. He's going, going back, back to Cali, Cali. An astounding... Contract at the time, he immediately decided to donate $10,000 to a church in Birmingham to rebuild its Sunday school. Quote, People ask me all the time how I could get the money when Willie Mays and Babe Ruth and all the other guys didn't get this kind of money. I tell them, don't ask me if I'm a better bass dealer than Maury Wills. I have to say no. Don't ask me if I'm a better bass dealer than Lou Brock. I have to say no. Am I a better outfielder than Roberto Clemente, Willie Mays, or Mickey Mano? Again, I have to say no. But if you ask me, was I in the right place at the right time? I have to say yes. He's
1: got some very, very good self-awareness. Yes.
0: Uh, The 1978 season started off poorly for Bostock, however. He batted 150 for the month of April. He collected just two hits in his first 10 games, and on April 18th, asked then-Angels manager Dave Garcia to bench him for the second game of a three-game series at Seattle. So humiliated was Bostock that on road trips, he began to ask that meals be sent up to his hotel room. Bostock met with the team's management and attempted to return his April salary, saying he had not earned it. My God. Quote, he came into my office and he told me he was reluctant to take his salary, Angel's general manager, Buzzy Bavassi recalled. Wow. Great name. That guy deserves a story just on that. (laughs) Quote, he said, I'm not doing my job, but I told him, I won't let you do that. And he says, why not? So I told him, what if you hit 600 next month? You're sure as hell not getting any more money out of me. (laughs) On April 30th, following an 0-4 for effort against Toronto that dropped his average to 147, Bostock told the media that, having been rebuffed by Gene Autry in his attempt to refuse the the month's paycheck, he would give his April salary to charity. Quote, I just can't make that kind of money and not produce, he said. I don't feel that I've done enough for this month. He felt the burden of expectations, Al-Hakim says. I was like Lyman, you have to take the money. You have to. Bostock refused, instead donating thirty-six thousand to a handful of causes, including his church, Vermont Square Methodist in South Central Los Angeles, which ran recovery programs for drug and alcohol addicts.
1: Yeah. So in today's term, that's like almost like half a million dollars. To, yes. Or not? Maybe maybe you know a quarter of a million. It's dollars a lot to, of money
0: that yeah. he just gave away. Wow. Because he was like, I played like shit this month. Uh, The New York Times wrote, quote, Lyman Bostock is hitting 1,000 in integrity. His batting average, though, is 147. Yeah. (laughs) But let's be real here. He's not doing well. He's not hitting well. He's not hitting well. He
1: might be a good person. Yeah, but but, uh, what's
0: that mean for the field? What's (laughs) that mean for... uh... (laughs) What does that mean for him and his teammates? Yeah, it yeah.
1: doesn't, doesn't yeah. mean shit.
0: By the end of May, was, he was only at 209. He would later say that near the end of his slump, he was, quote, almost hallucinating. Seeing myself step out of my body at the plate, it's the way some people think they see Martians. All
1: right, so it was a weird. Analogy. That is a very weird. It was analogy. a different time. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, In June, his bat came alive, though, hitting 402 for the month, and his average for the remainder of the season was well over 300. His final average was 296, with a on-base percentage of three sixty-four. That capped a three-year stretch during which Bostock posted the third highest average in the game, behind only Rod Carew and Dave Parker, and ahead of elite hitters of the era, including names like Brett. Rose, Madlock, who combined for 10 titles in their careers. Wow. In the final days of the season, Bostock and the Angels were in Chicago playing the White Sox. He went two for four with a walk on a Saturday afternoon game on September 23rd, 1978. That evening, as he always did when his team visited the Windy City, Bostock went to visit his uncle Tom Turner in nearby Gary, Indiana. Fuck. Fuck. After eating eating a meal with a group of relatives at Turner's home, Bostock turned to his uncle and said, Tom, whatever happened to Joan Hawkins, that girl I used to read to? I'd sure like to see how she's doing. Turner nodded. She lives right across town. I'll take you to see her now. All right. It had been nine years since Hawkins and Bostock had seen each other. But within 15 minutes, Lyman and his uncle were in her living room laughing and exchanging old stories. Oh, well, that went better than I thought. Yep. After the short visit, Joan asked if Bostock and Turner could give her and her sister, Barbara Smith, a ride to another relative's house.
1: It's one of those things that take you or bring you.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's going to take you this time. (laughs) Can you take me with your thing? (laughs) (laughs) Being the type of person he was, Bostock was quick to oblige and the four piled into Turner's Buick Electra 225. Hawkins and Turner up front with Smith and Bostock in the back. Unbeknownst to all of the occupants, Leonard Smith, Barbara's estranged husband, was outside waiting in his car. Smith was a 31-year-old unemployed steelworker, Gary Native, who lived under the top floor or sorry, who lived in the top floor apartment of a three-story building owned by his mother Mildred Skirlock. Guarded, moody, and erratic, Smith, who wore a hat almost everywhere he went, had arched eyebrows, a thin goatee, and angry, penetrating brown eyes.
1: So basically, you just described Satan. Yes. <laughs> Other than the hats. Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: you don't know Satan had hats or not? I
1: mean, I mean he's got the horns. I mean, but yeah, but just <laughs> that—that's that, a very uh, poor way to describe somebody. Well, <laughs> just a goatee and arching eyebrows. It's just.
0: Perhaps foreshadowing.
1: I know, I know. I'm just like... He
0: had an extensive police record, having been arrested at least seven times, including once for second-degree burglary, though never convicted. Smith blamed his parents' divorce for causing one of his sisters to commit suicide and another to be committed to a mental institution. He initially met Barbara in 1968 when she was a 21-year-old motorcycle gang member who had been thrown out by her parents for having a child out of wedlock.
1: So, oh my god, hold on. So Lyman reads to a child. That's right. <laughs> who ends up becoming... Whose sister. Yeah, in a biker gang?
0: Yeah, no. Okay. Lyman reads to the girl. Okay. And the girl's sister Oh. ends up in the biker gang. Okay. For having a child out of wedlock, and then meets Leonard Smith in 1968. Ah, Okay. All right. You got me now? I got you now. Okay. Within three months, the two were living together. Court records show he and Barbara had two daughters in the early 70s, then wed in 1974. Before long, their marriage was marred by jealousy, infidelity, and violence. They separated 10 to 15 times during their four years together.
1: Yeah, dude, that's not working out. No.
0: That's a lot of times. <laughs> that's in a, lot, a Not a lot of time. A
1: lot of times. There's, there's, yeah,
0: just, uh, just call it. Yeah, just call that one. Anyway, according to Barbara Smith, her husband beat her repeatedly. According to Leonard Smith, his wife cheated on him with his probation officer. <laughs> Quote, she always made it possible for me to see. He's quoted as saying in court documents, she flaunted it in my face. Barbara says, one time that August... And Leonard smacked her after accusing her of coming home too late. She immediately grabbed her children, packed a bag, and moved across town to live with Hawkins, her sister. Shortly thereafter, Barbara filed for divorce.
1: See, this might sound like the trashiest trash of all the trash, but this is pretty par for the course in Gary, Indiana. So, uh, it, by the by, the sounds of it, yeah, yeah this is uh, this is probably this is. You know, probably the middle middle class of uh, Gary,
0: Indiana, at the time. So, mm-hmm. so he's stalking her. Yes. On the morning of September twenty third, nineteen seventy eight, Leonard and Barbara spoke a futile attempt. He claimed to win her back. Later that night, at approximately ten thirty, Leonard pulled up to Hawkins' house, hoping to take his wife out on a spur of the moment date.
1: One of those classic spur of the moment dates after you've been separated fifteen times and divorced. Yeah, ten thirty. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's it's Saturday winning her back. It's Saturday night, but still uh, Anyway. Anyway. Uh, the time is not the issue. That's (laughs) that's when, while sitting in his car, he spotted Barbara climbing into the back seat of Turner's Buick with Bostock, a man Leonard didn't recognize but one he was absolutely sure was having an affair with his spouse.
1: Jesus fucking Christ. This is just one of those guys that's just like, say hi to somebody.
0: Are you fucking him? Yeah. (laughs) Quote, it looked as though he was whispering in her ear or kissing her on the cheek. He later said, quote, I could see nothing else, just him and her. Jesus Christ. Yes. Men are assholes. Fucking right. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Turner drove away from the residence, Joan Hawkins in the passenger seat, Bostock in the back behind her, and Barbara Smith next to him on the driver's side. Leonard followed closely behind, quote, "'We were just driving down Fifth Avenue normally, "'talking, no big deal,' Turner said. At approximately 10.40 p.m., Leonard Smith drove up to the Bostock car and began to argue with the occupants. Turner tried to drive away from Leonard Smith but Smith pulled, out, pulled his car alongside the Bostock vehicle at the intersection of Jackson and 5th Street at a traffic light that had turned red. Quote, I stopped at the red light on 5th and Jackson where a buy-low retail store used to be. Turner described the scene. At 1044, Leonard Smith pulled his vehicle next to the passenger side of Buick's Turner, or of Turner's Buick, <laughs> sorry, rolled down his window, leaned in the direction of his wife. Quote, I saw Leonard look at our car, Barbara, Barbara later testified. Then he looked into the back seat and smirked. Bang. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, he's, he's shooting people.
0: Quote, I thought our tire had blown out, Turner says. When he turned around, he saw his nephew's head slumped into Barbara's shoulder. Oh, God. As Barbara screamed, Tom, I seen him. Go get him. That's my stupid old husband. Turner watched Leonard's car speed off in the distance. Smith, in an unwarranted, jealous rage, fired a shotgun into the backseat of the car, his buckshot pellets striking Bostock in the right side of the head. Fuck. Turner dashed into a grocery store begging for someone to call 911. Within minutes, an ambulance arrived to take Bostock to nearby St. Mary's Mercy Hospital. Quote, The whole time Wesley never said a word, Turner says. Not one word. Doctors worked for three hours to save Lyman's life, but their attempts were futile. He died at 1.30 a.m. the next morning. Fuck. Yeah. So just, like, one of the best players in the league that just, like, you know, stamped out after, like, four years. Yeah. God, that's tragic. Because he was, like, a good enough guy to want to go and visit his uncle. Hey, I
1: used to read to an underprivileged child who's, you know, oh God. Yeah. That's your demise?
0: That's his demise. Oh, fuck. yeah. That's Lyman Bostark's oh. demise. Uh, the Angels got word at their hotel with teammate Don Baylor learning of the shooting from his wife phoning from California. Other Angels general manager, or others from Angels general manager, Buzzy Bavassi, who told Baylor and his teammates not to go to the hospital as there was no hope. It fell to Baylor to pass the word on to the team and hardened ballplayers broke down in tears. Baylor and teammate Joe Rudy sat in the hotel hallway for hours, talking, tearful, unable to sleep, knowing they had to face a ball game that afternoon. What? (laughs) Yeah, they were playing the next day.
1: Oh, God.
0: Yeah. The following day, when the Angels reported to Comiskey Park to play the final game of the series with the White Sox, they found a swarm of media and Bostock's locker already empty, his kit in a duffel bag. Angels DH Don Baylor described chasing a photographer away from an empty locker. Fergosi, looking prematurely aged, cancelled batting practice, and Max Patkin, the clown prince of baseball, scheduled to perform before the game, cancelled his act out of respect for Bostock.
1: Good. Yes. Also, I need to know more about that,
0: man. Yes, so do I. (laughs) Fergosi told reporters, quote, We're professionals, and this is our business. We'll play this game like it should be played. Right now, the team has to be secondary. A man has lost his life. A good friend is gone. Lyman Bostock had a super feeling for the game. He was close to everyone. I'll hold a meeting, but there's not much I can say. Everyone knows what kind of guy he was. Funeral services were held on September 28, 1978 at Vermont Square United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Bostock's popularity was evident in the days following his tragic death Bobby Gritch, an Angel teammate, spoke of Bostock's outgoing personality, quote, There were never enough hours in the day for Lyman. We called him jibber-jabber because he was always talking. Everyone was crazy about him because he was so outgoing and friendly, always up, always looking on the bright side. Angel pitcher Ken Brett spoke at the funeral, telling mourners, quote, He enlivened our clubhouse and took us out of the darkness of defeat. But he was a winner. He enjoyed life so much He had so little at the beginning. To add to the pain, within hours of the shooting, Bostock's agent, Abdul Jalil, phoned the Angels, demanding part of Bostock's salary for an unfinished business deal of which the outfielder's family was unaware. So he's trying to get it it for him, for himself.
1: Oh, what an asshole.
0: Yes, yeah. The Angels had already paid Jalil $145,000 to cover his agent's fee, Bavasi vowed to never deal with Jalil again. Yeah,
1: fuck that guy. Yeah,
0: and soon traded Jalil's three other clients on the team. Holy shit, they really went for it. Yeah, Ron Jackson, Landro, and Goodwin. Wow. Yeah, That's it was like, uh, well, really spiting
1: some. Yeah. I mean, bad timing. Yeah, awful, awful, yeah. awful. Like, have some tact.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Bostock's uh, $2.3 million contract was covered by Lloyds of London, but Euveen Bostock was hit with a significant tax penalty because Jaleel had rejected the Angels' original recommendation that Bostock take out an insurance policy instead of the team. Wow. Had Bostock done so, the benefits would have gone to Euveen free of tax. Dalil's decision saved Bostock ten thousand dollars in insurance fees, but cost Euvean about five hundred thousand dollars. Wow. I mean she probably still got a good chunk of change, but it's, it's bad advice.
1: Awful advice.
0: Yeah, this, this like, agent deserved nothing. Jesus. Save ten grand when you're like The best player and the best free agent. Yeah,
1: just imagine. Well, you got two point four million, two point three million dollars. Like, oh, we'll just save ten grand. Save
0: ten grand. Yeah, Yeah, it's
1: just your family's protection. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, not a big
0: deal. Yeah, you'll get ten grand. Yeah, you could buy another sob. Yeah, (laughs) you don't want. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Within an hour of the shooting, three Gary police officers interviewed Barbara Smith, who told them the killer was without question her husband. Upon arriving at Leonard Smith's mother's house, the officers saw his car parked out front. When the apartment door opened, there he stood, outfitted in the same clothes described by his wife a white t shirt and blue pants. Quote, she also mentioned that he was wearing a hat, recalls uh, Dan DeLeon, one of the officers on the scene. They always had a hat. Always. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, when we arrested him, Leonard said, I'll come out, but can I just grab my hat? <laughs> He <laughs> put on the exact hat described, and it was clear we had our guy.
1: Let me just grab my murder hat. Yeah. I mean, my... My, my normal, my, my, my everyday hat. hat. My, yeah, my innocence hat. No, this is not... I, see, I couldn't have murdered my that man. My acquittal hat. Yeah, I, no, I wasn't wearing the correct hat.
0: <laughs> Smith was brought to the police station, fingerprinted and placed in a holding cell, nicknamed the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Kenneth Shannon, a homicide detective, attempted to interview Smith, he uttered a couple of sentences, then demanded to speak with an attorney. That was fine because there was absolutely no doubt about his guilt. Shannon says, "You had the murderer, you had the motive, you had the witnesses. It seemed to be a pretty case closed deal." Sounds like it. Yep. Over the next 2 years, however, Bostock's family and friends watched in horror as Smith deftly worked the system. Fuck. Son of a bitch. Thanks to his mother's financial assistance, Smith was able to hire Nick Thyros, a quick-minded, smooth-talking, Gary-based defense attorney who was regarded as one of the Midwest's top legal minds. Quote, he was a tiger, says David Nichols, the chief deputy prosecutor at the time of Smith's arrest. Quote, Nick was a real tough cookie who was dynamic and bombastic in a courtroom. In short, if you wanted to beat a murder charge, Nick Thyros was the guy you wanted as your lawyer. <laughs> he probably went with the hat defense. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> see, he's wearing the innocence hat. <laughs> if it fits on
1: his head, then he was the not want, the guy who shot him dead. Yeah. <laughs> I was really ad libbing. Yeah, yeah you were fucking was, really going on. They're really trying to play off that OJ one. Yeah, there here we go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I knew what you were doing there. <laughs> okay, so this is what Thyros says. Quote: It's not a defense of Who Done It that we know. Or sorry, it, let me rephrase that better. It's not a defense of Who Done It that we know. Thyros told ESPN's Outside the Lines. Everybody knew that Leonard did it. The question was, how would I defend him? Smith was indicted by a Lake County grand jury on October 26, 1978 and faced 30 to 60 years in prison if convicted. Then, six days later, the first bombshell was dropped. Thyros entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity on behalf of Smith. As explained in the November 2, 1978 edition of the Post-Tribune, Quote, if Smith is judged insane, psychologists would be asked to determine if Smith is mentally incompetent or a danger to himself or others. uh, Senior Lake Superior Court Judge Andrew Georgie then would have to decide whether to begin Smith's commitment to a state mental hospital or free the Gary man because he has recovered from his insanity. So basically at this point, there's... There's... No repercussions of like committing a ca- a crime while insane, yes. So, um, earlier in the year, Indiana had reformed its laws regarding the insanity pleas a little bit as a reaction to a higher profile hostage situation that appeared in the morning of February 8th, 1977. Anthony Christus walked into Meridian Mortgage. Uh, in Indianapolis, he intended to meet proprietor, proprietor M.L. Hall to discuss a piece of land for which Kiritsis had fallen behind on payments, but M.L. wasn't there. Instead, Kiritsis went into the office of the owner's son, Richard O. Dick Hall. Kiritsis had a 38 pistol concealed in a sling and another more elaborate weapon hidden in a suit box. He had a modified sawed-off shotgun with a dead man's line. A uh, wire extended from the trigger to a loop, which Kiritsis placed around the younger Hall's neck. This ensured that if law enforcement were to shoot Kiritsis during the coming stalemate, the gun pointed at Hall's head would fire. Well, that's a pretty fucked up that's thing to do. That's fucking gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: a, that's a, I, I mean... That's, that's diehard. Like, yeah, that's, that's diehard that shit. That is
0: diehard shit. Yep. Uh... After exiting the building, uh, Hall and Caritzis, who was una- unable to find his vehicle, wandered first down Pennsylvania Street and then Washington Street in full view of public and television news cameras. When they reached Senate Avenue, Caritzis pulled Hall into a marked police station and forced him to drive to his home at Crestwood Village Apartments. A tense televised press conference was later held at the complex, complex in which Hall was made to apologize to Caritzis and promise him $5 million. An immunity letter, which prosecutors later admitted was a ruse, because of course it would be. Yeah, it'll like, eh, you'll, you'll be, be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. yeah, was also issued to Karitzis. A sixty three hour hostage situation, which by that time had captured national attention, ended peacefully when Karitzis freed Hall and was taken into custody. After Karitzis' arrest, he was being held at the Marion County Jail in a cell next to Roger Drollinger, who had killed four men near Raccoon Lake in a park county just a week after the Hall kidnapping. Caritzis was unhappy with his lawyer at the time, and Drollinger recommended his attorney, his attorney, Stanton. Stanton said at first, Caritzus was opposed to pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. for He saw this as some sort of lawyer trick pulling the wool over people's eyes. Stanton said, I convinced him that they had it coming is not a defense. (laughs) (laughs) A former law school classmate of Stanton's, Kiefer, was invited to join as co-counsel. Kiefer said at the time the burden was on the prosecution to prove that the defendant was sane at the time of the incident. Ah,
1: the old shoes on the other foot trick.
0: Yes. All we had to do was raise a reasonable doubt in the jury's mind.
1: We just kind of got to make him a little crazy. Yeah. And then they got to prove that he's really not crazy. Right.
0: Right. Ah, that's some scummy, scummy tactics. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, was convinced the Halls were trying to cheat him. Stanton said once they did their own research, they found this not to be the case. Quote, that even just goes to show you more. This guy had to be nuts to think so, he said. Dick Hall and his family were good to this guy. So that's their defense. They just show the evidence that, like, these people were nice to him, and he thinks they're trying to fuck him. So he's insane.
1: Yeah. It's just really, like, the the low bar. That's a very low bar for being insane. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just, uh, like, technically
0: anybody that just, like...
1: Disagree... A disagreement. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He's being insane. Yeah, no. Uh, After a 14-day trial, the jury found that Kritsis, not guilty by reason of insanity... Kritzis spent years locked up on contempt of court charges because he refused further testing. He was finally released in 1988, but at the very next session of the Indiana General Assembly, after the verdict, lawmakers reacted. State law changed in 1978 so that anyone claiming such a defense now had the burden to prove insanity based on preponderance of the evidence. So now the defendant has to say, has to prove yes. that I'm insane. Yes. 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 Uh, when the trial finally began on July 10th, this is the Bostock uh, yeah. trial, or the Smith trial. Yeah. Uh, on July 10th, 1979, Thyros zeroed, zeroed in on a single goal, proving Barbara Smith had caused his client to lose his mind.
1: <laughs>
0: Jesus. Fuck. Like, I know, I know. <laughs> quote, Barbara Smith... Listen to this. God Quote, Barbara Smith played with Leonard Smith like a yo-yo, he told the nine-man, three-woman jury in Lake Superior Court. Quote, Barbara Smith is responsible for this entire incident.
1: That's... It's not... Just, yeah, no. Yeah, no just, these no.
0: damn women and their mind tricks? Yeah, Leonard Smith claimed a jealous rage caused him to black out when he saw Bostock in the back seat with Barbara Smith. Quote, it looked like Bostock was whispering in her ear, kissing her on the cheek, he said. According to the Times archives, he told the jury he did not remember the shooting or its aftermath.
1: Yeah, so just like I remember it clearly, I have no recollection of that. Yeah, <laughs> just. <laughs> oh, that's. Just, I mean, it's infuriating. It's just like, like how did this happen? You know, you, like, oh God. I mean, you would one would hope it would not happen now, but but continue. Jesus. Yeah, the fuck.
0: defendant said his relationship with his wife was shaky, and the two dated other people during frequent separations. I all of these quotes. I, I don't feel like this is building a case. No. Like they're all tearing the case down. No. Yeah. yeah. Barbara Smith and Joan Hawkins both testified. Bostock was a family friend and denied the visit was anything more than a social call. The jurors failed to reach an agreement, resulting in a hung jury and a mistrial was declared. <sighs> On November twelfth, nineteen seventy nine, a second trial began. When two court-appointed psychiatrists testified Smith was sane when he shot Bostock, most surely believed the jury would find the defendant guilty. Yeah, one would think. You would think so, but guess what? Thyros had one last trick up his sleeve. Fuck that. As the final witness of the entire case, he called Dr. Frank Brogno, a charismatic man who had been Thyros' psychology professor as an undergraduate at Indiana University. (sighs) as opposed to, I feel like that's a conflict of interest. Oh god, that's a conflict of interest. <laughs> as opposed to the two stiff psychiatrists called by prosecutor Jack Crawford, Brogno was a humorous, easygoing man who could uh, speak to the jury and member speak to the jury members in layman's terms rather than using big medical terms.
1: Oh, that guy, that guy was... I understood what he said. I understood what he said, and and I feel like he's as smart as me. The other ones made me feel stupid. So I disagree. So I... How (laughs) That's just a problem with society, still
0: to this day. So he talked to them in everyday language. Thyro says he was able to convince them that Leonard was temporarily insane. (sighs) With dozens of Bostock's family members looking on, Lake Superior Court Judge James Kimbrough ordered Smith confined to Logan Sport State Hospital, when in June 1980, psychiatrists declared Smith no longer mentally ill. Because he never
1: was! That's right!
0: <laughs> he was released and allowed to return home less than a year after first going on trial. Fuck. Him, yeah.
1: Oh my God, Jack warned so much in this episode. Yes,
0: Jack Crawford, the Lake County prosecutor, called the case a legal tragedy and declared that Smith was a dangerous person inclined to violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He beat he his did wife, it. and then he shot no, a man.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like they, they don't. He stalked her. Yeah. <laughs> what were you doing outside of her house at 10.30 at night? I just wanted Uh, to take an impromptu date. date. I mean, I wasn't, I mean, mean, I was crazy. (laughs) I (laughs) mean,
0: on the bright side, the outpouring of anger over Smith's freedom, uh, convinced Indiana legislators to change state law again, beginning in the early 1980s, not guilty by reason of insanity could no longer be used as a get out of confinement free card quote Now if you're in a mental institution and they decide you're sane they put you in prison. Thyros says. I understand the change but I'm not in favor of it. <sighs> I mean yeah. I mean
1: that's a that's a tough line to walk it but is, at the same yeah. point like
0: in this case it was clearly Yeah, it's a reaction to like someone who's like clearly playing the system well, and that's but like
1: what fucks up the system yeah. and then, and then the system <laughs> yeah, exactly. reacts. like without oh. rules the world is anarchy. <laughs> Unless if you got money, there's no rules. You got a big lawyer, you can just create a whole new new loophole in the law, and then they'll fix that loophole in the law that'll fuck other people over down the line.
0: (laughs) Yes. So, on the other side, Leonard Smith walked away, freed to live his life, and Lyman Bostock enjoyed no such luxury. (sighs) Jeff Perlman, who wrote the ESPN.com article, Fifth and Jackson, which I used a lot for this story, actually, because it had a lot of the quotes. Yeah. Uh told of his encounter with leonard smith while researching the article and i'm just gonna like read the last little bit of his article here um here on jackson street in gary the buildings are either boarded or burnt out the street is littered with plastic bags and yellowed newspapers the alley grass as long as a Mich- Michener novel at the neighboring jackson street bond curry community center a rusted sign reading faith center has fallen and rests appropriately in a pool of muck. It is here on this one-way street to nowhere, in front of the same three-story brick building that Leonard Smith called home 30 years ago, where I am faced with one of the most difficult decisions of my life, knock on the door of a killer or drive away to safety. Here he is, or he is inside. I know this is true because the light is on, and these days at age 61, Smith seems to largely confine himself to the solitude of his small apartment. You don't hear much from Leonard anymore, says a local. He's quiet. Back in the day, Jackson Street was considered one of Gary's nicer locations. Now it's a soulless slum. One month earlier, I had called Smith to request an interview. Perhaps with the passage of time, Smith had mellowed. Perhaps with the passage of time, he had a story to to tell. Perhaps. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a writer for ESPN.com, and I wanted to see if I could talk to you. About what? Well, about the death of Lyman Bostock. I'm not interested, have a nice night. And that was that. I followed up with a FedEx letter explaining my intentions to try to tell your side of the story, but never received a reply. Another phone call went unreturned. So now here I sit anxious to fill in the blank to the final question of this story. How has Smith nearly 30 years removed from the murder of Bostock lived with himself? Little is known of his life in the past three decades. Once a dozen or so years back, he supposedly owned a used car lot in downtown Gary. Five or six years ago, Shannon, working security on Purdue's University Calumet Calumet campus, spotted Smith strolling from one building to another, presumably taking classes. Quote, I escorted you to jail, Shannon told him, for Lyman Bostock. Oh, Smith said. That was a long time ago. Then he walked away. Imagine that. Ugh. You're running into like like the, the dude that... Well, the dude that like arrested you is like the security at like this college you're at oh, now. Oh, God. And he runs into him. I want to knock on Smith's door. I want to show him my face and ask him about his existence, about his family, about that night on 5th and Jackson when he lives or when lives were permanently altered. I want to tell him what he put Uveen Whistler through, about what he thinks about every month when Lyman's baseball pension check arrives in the mail. I want to know what it's like to carry around that type of guilt. Whether he feels even, whether he even feels that type of guilt. But as I'm working up the nerve, I hear Tom Turner's voice in my head. The words are from a conversation we had a day earlier when he insisted that after so much pain. He had finally forgiven Leonard Smith for any wrongs. Quote, You can carry around a very heavy weight in your heart, Turner said, or you can focus on all the good there is out there and all the good Wesley brought us. I haven't forgotten what Leonard Smith did, but I've moved on. And that's the only way to handle something like this. The only way everyone should handle something like this. Rise above, move on, and remember the beauty of Lyman Bostock. So I drive away. Beautiful. Yeah. Who wrote that?
1: Uh Jeff Prohman. Jeff Prohman. I mean that's a good that's a good uh good 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 writing there. That was yeah, just it's fantastic. I'm glad you shared that.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean it's it's uh Yeah That's man. a
0: really tragic story. Um yeah. it's I, been a while since we I've had this empty feeling at the end of an episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That one sucked. Like that one I actually uh I'll plug another book right now called um Oh, plastic grass and big hair, big hair and plastic grass. Yeah. It's a uh, Dan Epstein yeah. book uh, about the baseball in the 70s. And that yeah. was just a quick, quick story, quick little story in there that kind of popped up. And I was like, Death of Lyman Bostock. And like it talked about him being a really, I'd never heard of him, just like you had never heard of him at the start of this episode. And, you know, as I looked into it, I was like, wow, this is like a really tragic story. And like, you know, the ripple effect of like him dying, like, you know. It caused waves. Caused waves in, like, state law, and now there's there's actually several states have adopted the... The law. Yeah, the, 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 what is it, you can uh, guilty but mentally ill is, like, the new phrasing of the plea bargains or whatever.
1: Yes. So, I mean, uh, yeah, Well, rest in peace, uh, Lyman uh, Bostock uh, and Dick Allen. And Dick Allen. It's... uh, it's a tragic tale, but I mean i'm I'm happy you shared that with me that was that was something as I hadn't heard of uh I'm glad I have and uh that that piece of writing there at the end that that you found is uh is was something else sitting so yeah I, uh, uh, follow us on Twitter follow us on Twitter at Doing baseball yeah, give us a review wherever you're listening to us on here on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, podbean wherever um thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, tune in in two weeks. I got a story for Edzie. Uh Let's just say we might be uh, continuing this trend. Uh... Oh no! <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> All oh. right. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, this is a. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's Christmas time, so you know what that means. Tragic tales about yeah. <laughs> untimely deaths. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> until next time. Until next I'm Sean. And I'm Ed. And we were doing some baseball. Uh, go sign somebody, anybody, including the Blue Jays. Okay, bye. bye. <laughs>